I want you to imagine, not terribly hard, uh, someone who's really short-sighted. Someone, even worse than I am, who has peered and stumbled around for years. Uh, In fact, they're so poorly sighted, they never bother opening their curtains uh, to view outside. They don't go outside even much, uh, unless to go somewhere. Uh, There's no point, they can't see anything terribly much. And then they have an operation, and their cataracts are removed, their short-sightedness is corrected, and they're able to see in glorious, high-definition colour. I can tell you it is a spectacular moment. But imagine that it makes precisely no difference to such a person. You go to visit them, and you arrive at their home, middle of a gloriously sunny day, and the curtains are drawn. Their appearance is still a shambles, as if they've never looked in a mirror. And uh, you say to them, you know, have you gone out anywhere? And they say, no, no, no. Somebody taking a drive to see the sea? No, no. Let's, let's, let's go and watch the sunset this evening. Why? Can you imagine how strange that would be? That getting their sight has made more or less no difference to their life. It has enabled them to to see better as they go about doing what they were always doing, but it has made no difference on a bigger scale. We would think there'd be something tragic in that, wouldn't we? And yet, man is like that. Mankind is like that. We were made to see something glorious, something utterly stupendous, something majestic, and to live in the light of this wonder and glory. And yet, Mankind spends his days with his eyes focused down, wandering about in his short-sighted days. And we can live only for what's here and now, what's right in front of us. Jobs, family, education, money, success, friends, family, fame, identity. And we're wandering around in this short-sighted stupor. Christians are like the man or woman who has had the operation and are now able to see. They can see something of the glory and majesty that we were made to live for. But sometimes we can get so distracted by what's in front of us that we are still walking around in a darkened room with our eyes down looking at what's the next thing on the agenda. And at the start of a new year, I want us to think about why we're here. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to glorify God. 400 years ago, a group of godly pastors gathered together and were pondering this question. Why are we here? And they wrote a question down. What is man's chief end or what is man's chief purpose? And the answer they come up with, man's chief end or goal is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's our goal. That's why we're here. Uh, that we might live for God's glory, that you might enjoy this glorious God. And we live in a world where people can't see that God is glorious. We read from Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. But we've been enabled to see. And so we should look different. We should live in a way 
that shows that we have seen the glory of God or know something about it. And why would we do this? Well, one, God is glorious. Two, it gives purpose and meaning to everything we do, even our pain and suffering. Three, the world desperately needs to see that God is glorious. They can't see God, but they can see how we think of God. And if we're convinced that God is glorious, then they'll see something of that. Why should we glorify God? Because that's why we're here. It's why the universe was made. It's why we were redeemed, why we were rescued. And that's what we're going to look at over the next uh, number of weeks. But even before we start into uh, to this today, a couple of questions. First of all, what is glory? Glory. Glory, the, the Hebrew word means weightiness. The, the weight that something has, and we could think of that like a diamond. The glory of a diamond is tied to, to its weight, to its size. And the grandeur of a diamond is tied to its weightiness. And the grandeur of God is tied not to its physical weight, that's not what we're talking about, but his majesty. The impact he has. I saw a science teacher doing an experiment the other day and it had a huge, it must have been something like a trampoline frame. And he had put this super stretchy material on it and clipped it all around the edges. And he was, he was demonstrating what the sun is like and the impact its gravitational pull has on other objects. And he threw this huge, heavy bowling ball of a thing into the middle of the the frame, and it sunk away down in this stretchy fabric, and then he threw other uh, balls in round it, and they, they orbited round and round and round. And then they eventually were, were sort of pulled in by the weight, the force of this, this heavier object, they were pulled in towards it. The weightiness of it, the glory of, of this bigger object pulled everything towards it. And so it should be with God. His glory should pull our gaze towards him. And all of creation displays God's glory. The heavens display it. The, the animal kingdom displays it. And yet man alone struggles to break free from the pool of God's glory. And God's glory is the awesomeness of God. This, one writer uh, says, God's glory is the sparkling of his deity. So what is it to glorify God? Well, it's not to make him more glorious. He's already glorious. He doesn't, he doesn't need us to, to make him more glorious. Like a man I read of recently whose girlfriend, her goal is to be the heaviest woman in the world. And her boyfriend's role is really to be her chef. And her, his, goal is, or his role is to enable her to grow in weight, to make her more weighty. Well, that's not our role with God to give him greater glory. He already has infinite glory. To glorify God is to recognize that he is majestic and spectacular and awesome. And to, to glorify God, we need to be convinced that he is all of these things. And that's where we're going this morning. To, to look from a number of perspectives at the glory of God. Now, there are 
hundreds of places in our Bibles we could turn. We could take a, a tour through the Old Testament and we could look at creation. We could look at the rescue from Egypt, the crossing through the Red Sea, the pillar of fire. God coming down in this pillar of fire and cloud and smoke on Mount Sinai and giving the law. We could look at the time they built the temple. On that day, whenever the fire came down and consumed the sacrifices and the glory of God filled the temple, we could think of him appearing in the fiery furnace. We could think of the majestic vision of Isaiah. We could think of the praise of the Psalms. We could think of John's vision and revelation. But there's one place where God especially says that his glory can be seen. In Hebrews 1, 3. We read these words. The Son, meaning the Son of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. So if you want to see the glory of God, the writer to the Hebrews says, you look at God the Son. And in our passage, verse 6, Paul writes, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Well, where is this glory of God that we've got the knowledge of? Well, it's displayed in the face of Christ. Verse 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The glory of the God who said, Let there be light is displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to see God's glory, look at Jesus. I'm not thinking of some statue or painting or carving, but in the portraits that we see in Scripture. We want to look this morning at a number of them. And as we do that, one thing that we need to remember is that the New Testament isn't the only testament. The New Testament is like, if I can put it, it's like the punchline after the setup of the Old Testament. Or the New Testament is like that moment where you've been led through a number of rooms and corridors that uh, aren't terribly, you know, the, the view isn't great. Or you're getting glimpses of a view, but not the full thing. And then... You're brought out onto a balcony or veranda and you see it all opened out in front of you. You go, wow, that's it. But all the glimpses along the way have given you clues and you've had the setup, and now you've got the reveal. Well, as we look at the face of Christ and these incidents in the New Testament, we've got to bring all our knowledge from the Old Testament with us and it's the lens through which we look at the face of Christ and then we see more of the glory of God. As we look at Christ. So let's think of these seven different faces. Um, The glory of God in the face of Christ in the manger. The glory of God in the face of Christ in the manger. Look at his little face. Soft, downy cheeks. Perhaps a tiny upturned nose. Sleeping peacefully in the manger. But consider that the one who lies there so small and fragile, and frail, is the one who said, let there be light. Look at the face in the manger through the lens of verse 1 of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. 
This is the one who said, let there be light. Here's the creator appearing in his creation. John says, he who was with God in the beginning, or he was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Here's here's the eternal God. And he has a birthday. Is that not strange? Here is the omnipotent one. And he's as weak and fragile as could be. Here is the all-knowing one. And yet, he lies without words. He spoke the universe into being. And here he is, in his humanity. He can't utter a single syllable. He's going to have to learn to think and to talk in his humanity. He's the one who created the heavens. And yet, his hands, his father Joseph, is going to have to teach him how to hold a chisel and a, and a, and a mallet and to carve. He's going to have to learn artistry. He who designed the human body. This is not incredible. He has to learn to talk. He has to learn to walk. He has to, 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 to learn his colors. He has to learn his, his ABCs. The God who knows everything comes into the world and lives. Starts off as a little baby. It's, that, that's what makes it so amazing. He, and here's, here's part of the tricky thing. Because at the very same moment that he's lying in this manger... He's also not just fully human as a baby, but he's also fully God. So in the very same moment that his mother is caring and looking after him, he is governing the universe and sustaining the universe. In Colossians 1, we're told that in him all things are held together. So in the moment that his mother is holding him, he, as it were, is holding the entire universe together something of the majesty and glory of God. Now, now, why is this? Charles Wesley said, Our God, in one of his hymns, wrote, Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. We can't get our heads round it. You know, how can he be fully God and fully man? But that's what he is. Why is he this? Why is all that power and glory contained in a crib? Why is there majesty in the manger? He does this to rescue us. He does this um, to rescue This is all for us. You're looking at this little baby's face. The mighty God looks like this for us to rescue us. We must press on. Um, each of these could be a sermon. Look at the glory of God in the face of Christ in his temptations. In his temptations. We skip past his childhood where he's learning to obey. He who gave the commandments is learning to obey. To obey. He who said, honor your father and mother is learning to honor his father and mother. But we press on past that, past his baptism. And here he is out in a wilderness being tempted. J.I. Packer spoke of, uh, put it this way, he said, he who created the angels who fell, is now being tempted by that very same fallen angel, Satan. 
There he is. Look at his face now. It's not soft and downy and chubby. It's gaunt and haggard. He's been without food for 40 days. Look at his face. He who in the wilderness provided manna for Israel is going hungry in a wilderness. He who filled Eden with its bounty is going hungry. Why? He is going hungry because he is there to take our place where Adam failed and didn't wait for God to provide but took the fruit that God had said not to take. The second Adam is there to wait for God to provide. He won't eat of his own accord. He won't produce food for himself. He's there not to play God. He's there to be man and to stand in our place. And here's the glory of heaven who created the heavens, who with a thought could have stilled the hunger pangs in his stomach, who could have created a feast in the desert, is waiting and starving for his Father to provide for him. He won't give in to Satan's temptation because that's the very thing that got us into trouble in the first place and he is here to get us out of trouble so he will go hungry for day after day. Look at his face. He's doing this to to fight temptation so that he can be your sinless saviour. Is that not glorious? Power restrained for the good of others. I read a story of an African-American on a bus in the 1930s. Uh, He was being taunted by a number of teenage youths who, you know, fancied themselves as hard men and they could could mock this black guy. And eventually he, he got up and when they get off the bus, and as he, as he turned away from them, he, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a business card and handed it to them. said, Joe Lewis, boxer. Um, a bit of an understatement. He was the heavyweight champion of the world. What a pounding. What absolute hiding he could have given those guys. But he restrained his power for their good. Your God came to be tested. Look at that face in the wilderness came to be tempted in order to do what you couldn't do for your good. Consider the glory of that moment and, and take it away in your heads and think about it. Take, see his face in a boat now. See his face in a boat. In Luke 5, we have another moment uh, in the Gospels. It's early in the story. It's a moment of realization for Peter. They've been out all night. They've been fishing because that's when you fish at night because that's when uh, the fish uh, come in close to the shore apparently. And Jesus has been in the boat. It's now daytime. He's teaching the people. He finishes teaching the people. And he says in Luke 5 to Peter and James and John, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Peter says, well, Master, we've fished all night and we've worked hard and caught nothing. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And Peter When he saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. What did he see as he looked into the face of Christ? Perhaps had Peter been a bit scornful of the carpenter from the highlands of Nazareth instructing the lakeside men of Capernaum to fish. You know, 
the fish aren't there during the day. They're away below rocks. Uh, they're away at their, where the rivers come down into the lake, where the oxygen-rich water is coming in. They're, they're there. They're not out in the deep parts of the lake. And you certainly, in this part of the world, don't fish in the middle of the day. And it, Peter perhaps rolled his eyes. And he, okay, Peter, or James and John and Andrew, let's go out, because he says so. The carpenter's sending us out into the middle of the lake to fish. Well, we'll give it a go. I wonder if he had thought something like that. Because his reaction when he turns is not to think, wow, you're so powerful, but to be convinced and convicted of his own sinfulness. And he falls down in fear. He had seen miracles before, but I think Peter sees past the face of the man from Nazareth. And he sees what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6, the Holy One of Israel, before whom the seraphim, the angels cover their faces and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he's in the boat with Peter. He's in the boat. And Peter doesn't say, Here, would you sign a contract so that we can go fish for the next three years and then I can retire? He falls down and says, Get away from me. I'm a sinner. He's convinced and convicted of his sinfulness because he sees in the face of Christ the glory of the holy God that they knew of from the Old Testament. And he's in his boat. The glory of God in the face in that boat. The glory of God in the face of Christ in Gethsemane. Come and bring that glimpse of the glory in the boat of the holiness of God with you to Gethsemane. And that same face is now streaked with tears. The garments around his neck are are tinged red. They're damp with sweat, but they're tinged red with blood as he's under such incredible stress and pressure that the, the little capillaries have burst and blood is seeping through the pores of his skin and mingling with his sweat and tears and staining his garments red. What is happening? His face is in anguish, in utter agony. And he cries out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What causes this? The face of the Lord of glory is twisted up in anguish and pain. It's sin. Your sin and my sin. The Holy One of Israel of Isaiah chapter 6 is becoming the sin-bearing one of Isaiah 53. All our iniquities were laid upon him and see his face contorted with fear and pain and anguish. It's not just our sin. He speaks of a cup and the cup was Old Testament language to describe the judgment of God in Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jeremiah has the same imagery. The cup was a sign of the judgment of God on his people. But here, the Holy One is crying out, Take this cup from me. Why is the Holy One about to drink the cup of judgment? 
It's because he's bearing the sins of his people. And here's the glory. The judge of all the earth is about to be judged. Look at his face. Look at his face as he comes to Calvary, to Golgotha. And he cries out, My God, my God, why? And here's his glory, his greatest glory. Come and see the Creator dying for his creation. Come and see the Holy One bearing sin. Come and see the Mighty One staying on the cross, refusing to use his might to save himself. Come and see the Judge being judged. The one who had never sinned, bearing sin. Was there anything ever more wicked than we crucified him? Yet is there anything more glorious than that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? Nowhere in all literature will you find a God who does this for his people. This is the glory of God seen at its greatest. Here it is. You don't see it in creation. but You see it here at the cross. This is his glory. That all you know from the Old Testament set up this moment in the New Testament. That God is that man there. Let's move on to see the glory of God in the face of Christ at the resurrection. We'll not spend long here, but that scarred brow, that ashen countenance, those lifeless eyes that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped up in the grave cloths. Here it is. And the woman have run to the tomb and the angels have met them. They've said, he's not here, he's risen. And they've run back to tell the disciples, but Mary... Mary Magdalene is lingering. She wants to know where the body is. And and she's broken hearted. And she's crying. And she hears a voice that says, Mary. She looks up into the face of the one that she had come to anoint. His cold flesh. But it's not cold. It's filled with life. He's alive. And look in that face. A face that has triumphed over death. That face has never been seen before. A face that has triumphed over death. Yes, there have been resurrections, but nobody had beaten death themselves. They had been raised. But this one had triumphed over the grave. And here he is. Here's his glory. The face of the risen Savior. Actually, why does he even have a face? Why does he have eyes, nose and mouth? It's for this moment of triumph over sin and death. He had a face and a body and hands so that he could bear our sin in his body to the tree so that he could defeat death, so that he could rise from the grave and take his people with him. Is that not glorious? Look at that risen face of Christ. Come with me now to another fireside and see his face in glory the glory of God in the face of Christ at a fireside. Another, another fishing expedition in John 21. And Jesus is standing on the shore, but they, they don't know that it's Jesus. Peter and James and John and Andrew are out fishing in the lake all night. 
They haven't caught anything. A stranger on the shore shouts, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat as if that's going to make a difference. Been fishing all night, left and right side of the boat, no doubt. And this stranger says, throw them on the other side of the boat in the morning time. And they do it and the nets are filled to bursting. And Peter, he goes, I've been here before, deja vu. I know. And he jumps out of the boat and he's running through the water, uh, splashing and struggling towards the shore. And it's Jesus. But it's more than a happy reunion. For there's a fireside. And after they've eaten, Jesus asks Peter a question. And to Peter's sorrow, Jesus has remembered the Holy One before whom at the start of the story three years previous with another miraculous catch of fish, Peter had fallen down and said, Away from me, for I am a sinful man. And now what will Jesus say to the one who had a fireside after all his boasting that although others would fall away, Peter would lay down his life. He would not deny him. And yet at a fireside he had denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And what will Jesus say now to this man? Will he say, get away from me, you sinful man? Here is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? And three times Peter had denied him. And three times Peter says to him, I love you. You know I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And three times Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. He said to him, Peter, I still have work for you to do. You're forgiven. It's all gone. It's paid for. It's done. When I cried out, it is finished. Your sins were paid for too. And here is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ at that fireside. The glory of forgiveness. The holy God who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and said, take off your feet or take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Should we not take off our sandals here? Is this fireside where the Lord of glory appears not holy ground? Do you see the glory of this God at the fireside? And then one last place that we're going to go this morning. See the glory of God in the face of Christ in glory. In Revelation chapter 1, John. Now get this, John who had been one of the disciples, had seen the miracles. John, who had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and seen the glory of Jesus. John, who has been thinking about this for 60 years, has thought more deeply on glory perhaps than any other human being ever. He says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours and Jesus was on the island of Patmos, Uh, Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard a voice. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. It says, I saw one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest, the hair on his head was like 
white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, who had seen the transfiguration. John, who had known that Jesus was the Son of God. John, who had been in the boat with Peter. John, who had seen the risen Jesus, is awestruck as he sees the risen Lord in glory. What does that tell us? It tells us many things, but surely it tells us that we can't exhaust his glory. There will always be more to amaze us of the glory of God. And so we should come with reverence and awe and say with Moses, show me your glory. This is the God that we are called to glorify. The God who has done so much to bring glory to us. Think of what all that we've looked at, all of that was so that we could exist, so that we could be redeemed, so that we who are dust and live in the third rock from the sun, one of billions of stars, that we could know Him and enjoy Him forever. God does all of this for you, for me. Is He not breathtakingly majestic? Let's ask God to help us to see more and more of His glory, that we will be struck by it as John was, and that we will want to live in such a way that people around us will see this glory and they will want to know about this God for themselves. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, how we marvel at what we've looked at this morning. And there's so many other places we could have turned to in Scripture to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see as we read your word. Let it come alive to us as we see through the lens of all that's already been revealed in the Old Testament, the wonder of the God who came into the world, of the one who was fully God and fully man, come to rescue foolish man and to take him out of his shame into this breathtaking glory of knowing you. Lord, we say with Moses, show me your glory so that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.